You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we're at the KGVM offices speaking via Zoom with Dr. Laura Arata, author of Race and the Wild West, Sarah Bickford, The Montana Vigilantes, and the Tourism of Decline, 1870 to 1930. So we are so excited to talk with Dr. Arata, but first, Crystal, I want to check in. Um, How has your last week been? Well, it's been super, super, super busy. Oh, I thought you were going to say cold. (laughs) I know, and that too. (laughs) We've had a lot of snow, we've had a lot of cold, and and just a, a busy time of year, which is always good. Busy with what? Yeah. What's your busy with? Well, you know, um, we're going to talk a little bit about this later, but um, there's this documentary that we've been helping oh, yeah. um, work on. And it's a documentary about um, historic Montana women. And the subject of our discussion today is one of those women, Sarah Bickford. But we've I've been working with the filmmaker, and she's doing all the script writing for it right now and all the, um, the collecting of images. And so I've kind of been helping her collect some of those images, mm. um, some of the remaining images that we want. And so that's been really fun to kind of go back into this documentary and, and really find some of these images that will tell the story of this um, story of us is what the documentary is currently called. Such a great story. story of us. Yeah. Yeah. And it features four women, Sarah Bigfoot being one, and then um, Maggie Smith Hathaway being another, Susie Walking Bear Yellowtail being the third, and then the fourth is Rose Humley, which kind of makes me think about something else that was happening this week. We had a speaker come in, Mark Johnson, mm. and we partnered with um, a group on the Montana State University campus called Asia, and they really highlight um, the history of um, the Asian population here in Bozeman. And so we did a collaborative event with them kind of focused around the Lunar New Year. And so Mark came in and talked about the historic Chinese community and how they celebrated the Chinese New Year. So that was really uh, amazing as well. So it's been a busy week. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Nancy? Well, I have a lot on my plate as well. Um, You and I have been talking about doing an exhibit at the Extreme History Headquarters. And so I am working on getting objects from the Kramer Lewis collection. These are artifacts that were collected by Oscar Lewis and or Joseph Kramer between about mm, 
1920 and 1960 in Montana, and they're all compiled into this handwritten ledger with photographs, and that's been a lot of my research, which we've talked about before, but there's some really amazing artifacts from sites in Montana in there, particularly southeast Montana, and so that we're hoping will be an exhibit at Extreme History that we can have up for a while and and then also do some programming around and potentially also a paper um, at the Collecting Yellowstone conference, which will be held this summer. Um, We've also been talking about maybe doing a a course for Extreme History, and I'm finishing reading up The Dawn of Everything, um, a book out by David Graeber, and it's such a fantastic read. I highly recommend it for anybody who's enjoyed Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond or Sapiens, um, which is written by a historian. And um, it's it's one done by two anthropologists, one with a lot of archaeological background. And I think it's by far, for me, the most interesting take on understanding humans as a species, honestly, and, and sort of what we can learn about ourselves from a really Um, close look at what we've learned about our behavior and our creation of different cultures and societies in deep time. So that's been really fun. And then thirdly, I am annotating a photograph of Avonlea points that my husband made when we were digging um, in Garniel at the, the Bergstrom Bison Kill site. And part of my husband's Um, exhibit that will be going up in Portland will be to have a lot of photographs about different aspects of deep time and climate change that are annotated by scientists. And so I happen to be doing one on the points recovered from that site. So a lot going on in that arena. So yeah, Yeah. so plenty to keep us busy. Busy too. But yeah, Yeah. we need to we need to get back to our guest. We do. We do. Well, we're so glad to have you here with us today, Laura. Welcome. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I'm always really excited to talk about Sarah Bickford, and I'm especially excited to talk about Sarah Bickford with you two. Wonderful. We're thrilled. Um, So I want to start off, Laura, by telling some listeners about you. Dr. Laura Arada is a public historian who specializes in the North American West, with an emphasis on race, gender, and ethnicity in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Dr. Arata is particularly interested in the popular memory, material culture, and heritage tourism of the Wild West, in quotes, and the American frontier more broadly. Prior to joining the faculty at Oklahoma State University, she served as a consulting historian for the Montana Heritage Commission and co-principal investigator for the Hanford History Project. Her first book, Race in the Wild West, Sarah Bickford, The Montana Vigilantes and the Tourism of Decline, 1870 to 1930, is a biography of the nation's first African-American female public utilities owner and heritage tourism entrepreneur, Sarah Bickford. It won the 2021 Western Writers of America Spur Award for Best First Book and the 2021 Western Association of Women's Historians Gita Chowdhury Prize. Wow, what a wonderful um, uh, resume that you have, and we're so excited to bring someone like you on the dirt on the past. Laura, welcome. Yeah, so Laura, we like to start off by asking our guests what brought them to to their field of study, and so in your case, the field of history. But I also want to add to that question, what brought you to write this book about Sarah Bigford? 
you know, it's amazing because those things are so interconnected for me. Um, I call myself an accidental historian. I never set out with this clear idea of what I wanted my career path to be. I was kind of an accidental college student. Um, and it was just this really beautiful series of coincidences that happened in my life. My very first undergraduate college history class was with Quinard Taylor. He just happened to be teaching History 101 wow. my very first year of college at the University of Washington. And so through his class, of course, he's a prolific historian of African-American history, and he really did challenge me to think about history in new ways that maybe I hadn't been taught when I was in school or in high school or reading books on my own. Um, and then I never really set out to go to grad school. I sort of accidentally ended up enrolling in a master's degree program. I was living near Washington State University, and I thought, well, I don't really know what else I'm doing with my life. Perhaps I'll go back to school and see what that's like. Nobody in my family had ever been to grad school. So that was a brand new, you know, adventure to embark on. And my very first semester in grad school, I was invited to go on this little field school. It was the first field school that was ever being held. And it was in Virginia City, Montana. So <laughs> I ended up, you know, strolling down the street in Virginia City and walking into a building and seeing this one eight and a half by 11 piece of paper on a wall that said this woman named Sarah Bickford used to have her business in this building. Well, that's strange and interesting. And it's the more I went back to Virginia City and I ended up writing my master's thesis about Virginia City, um, the more I really started to feel a duty to tell the story of this woman named Sarah Bickford and everything we knew about her fit on like one sheet of paper at mm. that point. So the process of me agreeing a little bit reluctantly that I was going to go to even more grad school and get a PhD, which I never could have envisioned when I was growing up, right? That was never even a dream um, that someone like me could earn a PhD, but there was that sort of moment of realization that if I want to tell the story of this pretty incredible woman named Sarah, I'm going to have to learn all the tools of being a good historian so I can try to do that. So I say this all the time. I really owe a lot of my career and a lot of where my life has gone to that kind of really wonderful moment where I came across the story and was fascinated and wanted to be able to share other with other people the story of Sarah. And so I credit her in a very real way with a lot of what I've accomplished. And I think it's such a powerful testament to why history matters. Yeah, I promise I that all of my answers that... will be this long. But... No, but the fact that you you felt that pull and you were drawn to understand that story. That's all coming from you. I mean, Sarah is a phenomenally interesting character, but it has taken a long time for you to come along and be the one to tell it. So good timing and, and kudos to you for really um, being willing to kind of answer that call that you felt too and following through in so many ways. So your book, Race and the Wild West, looks at Sarah Bickford's life. And she was a black woman 
who grew up enslaved in Tennessee and then traveled to Montana Territory because it was just a territory when she arrived after she was emancipated. Um, and so that would have been after the Civil War ended. Sarah settled in the gold rush town of Virginia City where she lived out the rest of her life. She had married twice, both times to white men, and had two families with these men. And you'll tell us a little bit more about that as we go on. When her second husband, Stephen Bickford, died, she inherited his shares of the Virginia City Water Company and acquired sole ownership of the water company in 1917, which she then ran until her death in 1931, so for quite a long time. So I have to say, when I heard her story first, just that who she was and she owned the water company and, and she was an African-American woman, I had a million questions also. And, and my questions were, how did she get from where she came from enslaved out here and somebody who was, who was capable of acquiring and running a water company in a very small, what was originally a kind of a boom-bust town, because it boomed for a while, but then it busted and she stayed there. And there couldn't have been, as we knew, that many other African Americans in that community. So it's it's a remarkable story in so many ways. But I think um, the process of you doing the research and uncovering somebody who was born a slave, who wasn't really recorded as a person in the same way white people were, you know, um, when when she would have been born. I want you to tell us a bit about both the research and then what you found out about her early life before she made her way out to Montana. It was such a process, and it really was one of those very organic processes of, I learned how to be a historian in learning how to research her. And it takes you know, really like a dedicated set of tools if you're trying to find people in history that haven't had their history recorded, right, in the same ways or with the same, right, sort of prolificity. But is that right. a word? As prolific it is now, way. sure. Yeah. <laughs> I've invented other words that are in print, so I feel like we can go with that. Yeah. Um, but the process of finding her story, I mean, it really did start out with a lot of disappointment. I set out to try and work on her story. You know, I thought, well, this, there must be more of a story here. I would really like to talk about it. And I, you know, had done a couple of years by that point of searching through Virginia City newspapers. And I was pretty familiar with Virginia City from writing my master's thesis and just wasn't coming up with anything. This was back in the days, of course, when you had to like search with microfilm, we didn't have all the fun OCR recognition and tools that we have now. Right, um, right. But I just remember being so frustrated and thinking, well, if I'm going to find you know, like one tiny little line about her in one newspaper, it's not going to give me enough to write a whole story. And I was told at a few different points by really you know, well-intentioned people that you're not going to find enough to write more than maybe an article on that story. Um, but I remember the moment when that all sort of clicked together. Um, and some of these discoveries, we got really lucky. We don't really know why this happened. It's one of those like great mysteries, but yay for us because it happened. Um in 1860, of course, the census was still recording freed Americans and enslaved Americans. So there's a 
schedule one for free inhabitants and schedule two for slaves. And for whatever reason, the census taker in Washington County, Tennessee, where Sarah was born, um, decided that he was going to record the names of all the slaves in that town on schedule one. Which is unusual, right? They don't usually record the names in as many details. Is that right? Very, very unusual. So schedule two wouldn't have recorded a name at all. It would have just recorded someone's age and their sex and the color of their skin and a monetary value. Value. Literally a way to As property. property. Yeah. Not this sort of name that would have made them human. And let me just go back and say, you knew she was from Tennessee from things you already had learned in Virginia City, is that correct? Or we how did you good, find it? Yeah, we had a good guess. Okay. So the best source we had on Sarah Bickford's life when I first encountered her story was a really short, a couple of paragraphs that had been written about her and Stephen Bickford by a couple of their children for this big compilation on Montana Pioneers. So Sarah Bickford's two of her daughters had written these little short biographies of their parents, and they noted that Sarah had been from Tennessee. And we had kind of a rough idea that her original name had been either Blair or Gammon. So I had kind of two families that I could think about trying to track in Tennessee and see if I could find information about the slaves that they owned by searching through records of those families. So there was a little bit of confusion as to whether she was from Tennessee or maybe North Carolina, you know, somewhere in the area where like state boundaries changed over time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I at least had like a hunch. I had somewhere to go on. And so when I got to, I think we started in Knoxville, I was working with the Montana Heritage Commission and we were lucky enough to get a grant from the National Trust for Historic Preservation to go do some research on this history. And that's when we stumbled across the census for the very first time. And it's just that one little line that says, you know, there's someone named Sarah Blair living in this house. She's the right age. All the details that I have match up enough that now I can go search further in these records. And it has to be said, there's still a ton of things we don't know. All the things we know about her early life, we either kind of have in little snippets from different kinds of sources that are fragmentary, or one of the things we have to do as historians of people who haven't been written about as much in our history is try and reconstruct the world around them and infer the best we can, what our best guesses are, things we're probably like, and that was what I decided I was going to do no matter what. You know, if I couldn't get at every detail of Sarah's life, I could reconstruct the world around her. I could reconstruct what life was like in Virginia City and see where her story led within that. But yeah, shout out to the census taker in 1860 for Washington <laughs> County, Tennessee. He gave us so much more information on not just Sarah, but there's a bunch of enslaved residents of Jonesboro and a couple of other towns from that moment that we have enough now we could do more research on them and 
you know, what one of those wonderful little instances of history where you're like, oh, thank right. the Lord, yeah. this person made a decision and right. it changes everything changes everything in the way we can go about research now. So what what was her life like in the 1850s and 1860s out in Tennessee? What constructs some of that world for us? We don't have a ton of details, so I'm giving you my best guesses. Um, we know for sure she was owned either by a man named John Blair, who was a United States congressman, and he was like a really bitter political enemy of Davy Crockett. So he's actually pretty fun to write about. They got into a lot of fights in Congress. Um, or by his brother, Robert Blair. So both John Blair and Robert Blair have slave girls named Sarah in their households in 1860. And it's one of those two Sarahs on the census, right? That same census taker gave us both of their names. Um, I lean towards it probably being John Blair just because of the skill set that Sarah had when she arrived in ten um in Montana from Tennessee. So we know that she was really skilled at cooking and she had the kinds of skills that were needed to run a boarding house and things like that right up front. And John Blair owned a hotel. The slaves that are enumerated with him on the census in 1860 are living at his hotel in downtown Jonesboro. So it makes sense that she would have acquired those skills there at a pretty young age. Um, Other than that, we, I think probably the most heartbreaking detail we know is that she told her daughters later that she had been separated from her mother as a child. And there was one Christmas day in which she recalled as a very young child being able to visit her mother at the great house in Sarah's words, which also is what leads me to believe she's at that hotel because she's definitely not around the great house if she has this memory of going to visit her mother. Um, And she says, aside from that, she never saw her parents again. She had no idea who her parents were or any other details about them. But we also know that in that time period, she picked up how to read and write a little bit. She's able to read and write when she gets to Montana, which is fairly unusual for someone who you know hasn't been out of slavery for that long. So there were a lot of things happening in her life and she certainly was witnessing the civil war and the union occupied that part of Tennessee pretty early. So she would have viewed this hope that you know, freedom was coming probably a little bit in advance of when it actually arrived for her. Do we know how old she was when the civil war started? She's not quite 10, I believe. So she's still a child. It must have been a a very, I mean, you don't really know your parents. So who knows who really raised her? You're not working alongside your siblings or your parents. And then this war starts. Mm -hmm. To what degree do you really understand what that means for you at age 10? That's such an interesting place to go. Um, in our minds to try to understand what her her life must have been like. Yeah. Mm. So then, Laura, how did she make her way from Tennessee to Montana Territory? That's one of the parts of the story we actually know quite a bit about, luckily (laughs) for us. Um, So after the Civil War, she went to live in Knoxville for a little while and 
we don't have great details about her life in Knoxville. She's probably working at the home of um, someone who had been a general for the Confederate army. And she's kind of doing domestic work. It's what it sounds like happened. Um, but then she is very close with the family of someone named Isaac and Nancy Gammon. And Isaac Gammon had been a slave for um, some very close neighbors of the Blairs in Jonesboro, Tennessee. So the family he was owned by and the family Sarah is owned by are really close. They're really connected with each other in a lot of ways. And Isaac Gammon's wife, Nancy, is a free woman and was always a free woman, which was really interesting. And the two of them were sort of allowed to be together and marry pretty early. Um, so Isaac Gammon ends up running for alderman in Knoxville. And that puts him in a little political circle with a guy named John Luttrell Murphy, John Luttrell Murphy had been an officer for the United States colored troops during the Civil War. So we get a little bit of a sense of his political leanings from that. And John Luttrell Murphy decides he's been appointed an associate justice in Montana Territory in 1870. And he needs someone to go with him. His wife stays behind in Knoxville for a little bit, but he has two kids and the two kids are going to go with him across the territory to mm. Montana. That seems so. very strange, yeah. Laura. So <laughs> the wife will stay behind on her own and he's going to go out with the kids and then needs help, obviously. Um, hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to yeah, know more about that story, but go yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is what it seems like. Yeah. Happened. Yeah. Um, we do know that his wife joined him later and John Luttrell Murphy actually doesn't stay in Montana very long. He's okay. an associate justice, but there's sort of a lot of tensions in Montana lingering from the civil war when he arrives and, um, his politics are probably like pretty conservative by our standards, by the standards of the people he's appointed by in his own day, he's sort of not radical enough for what he's been appointed to do in Montana. And he ends up moving to San Francisco not too mm -hmm. long after this. So maybe he and his whole family. Maybe it was just a stepping stone for him and his wife knew that. And, and she so, knew. Yeah, yeah. She just said, I don't want to yeah. go to Montana. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a thing I yet. I don't it's blame not her. State. Yeah. yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Right. Weird, crazy territory with yeah. all these people hunting gold. Yeah. All right. All right. I think, I, I mean, I might be remembering this wrong, but so he gets in trouble in San Francisco, actually, because he's speaking out against graft and corruption and oh, all wow. of these things. He gets run out of there, too. And I, I want to say he ends up in Hawaii, but let's not quote me on that. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. That's another warmer. podcast. Um, but so did Sarah makes the journey out with him to help with the kids. Is that what happens? That is my best guess. I know that John Luttrell Murphy brings her to Montana Territory. She's probably about 16 at the time. She's probably in his employ. Um, but we know that she goes to work in a hotel in Virginia City pretty mm. soon after she arrives. So they arrive in like January. It's a bitterly cold winter, Ooh. 1871. Mm -hmm. By 1872, Murphy's gone, but she's going to stay behind and she's going to get married not too long after that her first child will be born not too long after that so wow Sarah makes a very active decision that she's going to stay in Montana and mm -hmm. not move on to wherever Murphy is going 
So what does Virginia City, Montana Territory look like in 1871? Can you kind of paint a picture for us? It's really important to remember it would have still been a boom town when she arrived, right? 1871, it's still the territorial capital of Montana. It has all these big aspirations and hopes and dreams of this big modern community that it wants to become and all the big grand buildings they want to build. And they're still hoping the railroad's going to get there. It's going to unlock all this opportunity. And so it really is still in that heyday moment where, yeah, maybe a little bit of the like initial mining boom population has dropped off. But they're very much still hoping that they're going to build this city that's going to be a metropolis in Montana. It's still nicknamed the social city, right? This is where everybody's coming. You need to buy dry goods or you want to go to a dance hall or you want to visit a nicer saloon than what you'd find in your own little town. And so she's there to witness those last few years of really all that hope and optimism before 1875 and of course that's when the territorial capital moves to Helena and it starts to become increasingly clear the railroad's not coming it's not going to reach Virginia City and so she really does witness that organic decline of Virginia City going from having all these aspirations that it will be the center of this territory and of this new state that everyone is looking towards being formed um And she's there to witness then what happens in the aftermath of all those disappointed hopes and dreams. So it it makes sense then that she would want to stay, you know, after even though the man she came out with was moving on, she probably felt there was a lot of opportunity. There was a lot of opportunity. And it sounds like just getting a job right away in a hotel. um, So she didn't just stay in his domestic employ and be a dependent. It's sort of like as soon as she could, she started creating her own identity there, making her own wages. Kind of making her own life there. Absolutely. Um, Which I'm sure a lot of people did in Virginia City. But but Sarah is such a a unique character in some way. I'm going to let you finish your question. Go ahead. So so you know, also thinking about Virginia City and was there a black community there that she would bond with? And is that one of the reasons that she decides to stay? How many members of the black community are there at that time in the 1870s, early 1880s? That's a great question. That is the high point for a black community in Virginia City. Um, but it's never very big. So I think it's really important we keep in mind because I love that idea, right? She's making this own life for herself. And I just think it's so important to at least take a second to really, I mean, sit with that, that she truly is a pioneer, right? In the biggest sense of the word, we tend, we think about that word and what it means. And we don't always think of someone like Sarah Bickford, but she really is, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So the African-American community, when she arrives in Virginia City, um, There's two other women, Minerva Cogswell and Parthenia Swede, who were also probably born in slavery and made their way to Montana. We know a little bit less about them, um, but they're definitely running a boarding house by the mid-1870s. And they're also, like Sarah, selling cakes and pies and meals and all sorts of things to anyone who's in town. Um, Another interesting thing that 
Sarah and Minerva and Parthenia share, and I always feel like I have to mention this because it's such a fun detail. All three of them made and sold ice cream on 4th of July celebration days. Yeah. For years, like Virginia City will have these massive 4th of July celebrations. It's the biggest settlement in that part of Montana, right? So, of course, it's going to do that. Um, And Sarah and Minerva and Parthenia really specifically are the three people we know who were making ice cream and selling it to visitors. So so skills they may have learned in houses if they were those kind of domestic servants. I feel like we've heard some of these stories, even when we were talking with Taya Miles and others, Mm -hmm. just learning how to cook, learning what to do with certain ingredients, learning how you might have taken care of guests or running a boarding house. We have examples of a black woman here on our main Mm -hmm. street running Mm -hmm. a boarding house. Um, But being able to uh, acquire the materials that you need to do that and access to supplies and then place to do it all, you know, you have to own property, you have to have cash, you have to know how to manage that. And knowing that she at least did have some reading, writing skills, probably some mathematical skills, um, really putting that into practice um, as soon as she gets there. Um, I'm interested also in the fact that we know people from both the North and the South ended up in Virginia City. And the Civil War, you know, Virginia City got going in, in 1863. And the Civil War is still going on till 1865. Um, and then Reconstruction starts happening after that in the East. But in the West, we know that there were a lot of people from both the North and the South that had either fled during the Civil War um, or uh, just after. So I wonder if you have any sense while you're doing your research of the relationship between Northerners and Southerners who were living in Virginia City, and if there were, if there were tensions, and if that in any way affected Sarah's experiences as a black woman who had been enslaved, but who was now free and living in the West, um, would she have been treated differently by someone from the North and the South? What What are your thoughts on that? Most assuredly, um, I just want to make sure to like finish off the thought of this question about the black community in Virginia city. Cause it ties in here, like really in important ways, there's only maybe 10 or 11 African-American residents in Virginia city. There's the three women. And then the rest of them are men who are like day laborers and um, different things like that. And most of them were from parts of the South, like pretty across the board, all of the African-American people we know who ended up in Virginia city, had come from Missouri or Tennessee or kind of somewhere in that corridor. And we see all those dynamics playing out with the rest of the residents in Virginia City. So there's men from the North who land in Montana. There's men from the South who land in Montana. There's a lot of people there who have already been out on other gold frontiers. So maybe they've been in San Francisco or they've been in Nevada or they've been right in one of those other places that has been a boom town. And now they're kind of headed back east. Um, We see men from both sides who are kind of latently supporting the other side. So northerners who kind of tacitly still support slavery or Southerners who weren't excited about leaving the Union. You really have all of those people kind of crashing together. And it makes sense, right? Because in this moment of 1863, some people are trying to get away from the Civil War because they don't want to fight in it for whatever reason. A lot of people have their own motivations for why they would end up 
on this frontier, um, which is one of the most remote frontiers you can be on at that moment in time. And we get a sense of those tensions and things just like place names, right? So there's a Union Gulch and there's a Confederate Gulch. Mm -hmm. There's gulches and mining loads that are named really derisively after caricatures of Black Americans. And you kind of see all the hopes and dreams of every side just dropped down on this territory. And people really trying to figure out okay, in this moment where it's not clear what the outcome of the Civil War is going to be, and it's not clear what the outcome, right, of the fate of slavery is going to be yet. And all those things are still to be decided. So there's chaos going on back east as the Civil War is being fought. There's chaos in this territory where everybody's trying to figure out their place and probably encountering a lot of people they don't know. So there's a lot of anonymity which breeds fear which breeds right just a lot of tension and uncertainty and that's where we see something like the montana vigilantes emerging as a way to try and exert some control over the environment that everybody's living in so by 1871, when she arrives, you know, we, we have that ending to the Civil War. We have Reconstruction going on back east. We know who won and who didn't, but it sounds like these names persisted and, and people probably developed certain affinities already in who settled and, and was staying in Virginia City, whether maybe they had roots on one side or the other. So when she... Um, arrives there and decides to stay. Does, does do you think it plays out in how um, she was treated by certain people in Virginia City, the Society City, or whatever? Yeah, the social city. The social cities. <laughs> Thank you. I think there's, I mean, multiple ways that we can view that. One of the outcomes of this story that we kind of have to talk about in relation to her story is. We know that she goes on to promote this legend of the Montana vigilantes. And of course, they're still this enormously popular part of Montana history and tourism and their fascinating story. Um, And we know that sort of on a general level, most of the men who were vigilantes were union supporters or Republicans at the time. Most of the men that they execute are southerners or southern sympathizers or like henry Plummer, who's the sheriff of bannock in virginia city is widely accused of being a copperhead so a northerner who supports the ideas of the confederacy um and so i think there might have kind of been this understanding i don't know if sarah thought about it actively maybe she did um Conditions back east are deteriorating pretty quickly if you're a Black person already, even as we're in the midst of Reconstruction. There's this moment of hope where Black people are going to run for office and they're hopeful they'll have the right to vote. And right there's all these right. promises that have been made. And someone like Isaac Gammon, right, who's freed from slavery, he becomes the first black alderman of Knoxville, Tennessee. He owns some property. He's got all these hopes and dreams. And we see 
segregation set in really quickly in some place like Knoxville. There's a race massacre in Memphis in 1866. By the late 1860s, it's becoming pretty clear that African-Americans are not going to be allowed free access to the polls. There's going to be a lot of restrictions. And so Sarah Bickford, we know that she travels back to Tennessee regularly. She's probably still interacting with the Gammon family. She'll sometimes use their last name. And so she's certainly witnessing okay, well, in the place I came from, all these rights are already being taken away, right? And we have to keep in mind, too, she's witnessed what slavery is like. There's never any guarantee that freedom is going to continue in this linear fashion that we sometimes have a tendency to think of it. And so I think there is this sense for her that in Montana, there's probably less people, well, for sure, like there's less people who look like her. It's a very small community, but she's not being treated in that same way of having always been known as a slave until that moment of the Civil War. People she knows in Virginia City have only known her as a free person, as a business owner, as someone who's contributing to the community. Um, and, you know, we just we have to kind of wonder. There's a lot of supporters of the vigilantes who we know are really like active and passionate abolitionists. Some of them are radical Republicans who are really openly fighting for some of these rights, at least in principle, if not always in practice. And so perhaps that's some of her interest in acquiring that property and promoting that story of the vigilantes. And um, as we'll talk about the hanging that occurred in that in that building. Laura, we're going to take a quick break and um, do a station break. I just butchered that whole thing. I'm just going to start all over. It's one of those days. Never go skiing before a podcast. That's the lesson. Okay. So, Laura, we're going to take a quick station break and get back with more questions. You're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. Today we're speaking with author and historian Dr. Laura Arada about her book Race in the Wild West, Sarah Bickford, The Montana Vigilantes, and The Tourism of Decline, 1870 to 1930. So Sarah marries an Irish immigrant named John Brown in 1872. So just a year after she comes to Montana Territory, she marries this gentleman, John Brown, who is an Irish immigrant. And as we know in history, um, Irish people were also looked down upon at this time. And so it's interesting that she marries him. But this is a very unhappy marriage, especially on Sarah's part. Um, Mr. Brown was very abusive to her. And it is noted by not just her, but by the community. But the couple have three children, two boys and a girl. And the two boys, unfortunately, die very young. Um, I think one is an infant, you say, and then also one is just a toddler. And, of course, um, infant mortality in the West was extremely high at that time. So... Um, Sarah stays with Mr. Brown for for a time. What is his first name? Um, 
did I say it? John, John Brown, John Brown. Um, Sarah stays with John Brown for a time, but uh, ends up divorcing him in 1880. And so you have a whole section in your book about divorce at this time in history. And there was a lot more divorce than we realize today. Divorce was pretty prevalent. And so Sarah took advantage of that and divorced him. Um, She took her daughter Eva with her out of this marriage. But unfortunately, just after about a year after the the divorce was final, Eva ended up dying as well. And she was about eight years old at that time, or just almost eight years old. So it's just such a sad story that um, Sarah marries this man, has a family, and loses her entire family, and is, is a single woman again in Virginia City. She marries a second time to Stephen Bickford in 1883, and Stephen is a little older than her, about 20 years older um, than Sarah. So can you tell us a little bit about Sarah's marriage to Stephen and how it was different than her first marriage? Absolutely. Yeah, we, I mean, it's one of the moments we really just, your heart breaks for her, right? It but does. It's also one of those moments where you think, this is such an important story for us to know about. Um, and I remember that moment. I just have to say like really quickly and then I'll move on to Stephen Bickford. No, but yeah, I mean, that's this fine. Was a, a turning point in my life. I was kind of at that point of giving up. I was like, I'm just not going to find enough about Sarah Bickford to be able to write this book. And I'm frustrated by it, but I don't know what else I'm going to do. If I can't find sources about her, how am I going to write about this? And I had run across the obituary for her, one of her sons, James Leonard Brown, in the newspaper. And when I was looking for something else, completely different, as it you know usually goes, um, the best discoveries are by accident. But I remember sitting there for having like a few different feels. One of them being that they didn't note that he was black, so. Unless I had gone looking for that information, like I was not going to know what I was looking at in the newspaper. Um, but it was also the first and the only source where I ever encountered his full name being written out anywhere. So you have to just like try and put it in perspective right up to that point of trying to write about Sarah Bickford's story. It had always been, you know, it's kind of tossed around. Well, she had at least two sons that died. That's all we know. But being able to give one of those children back his name and say, well, for sure, his name was James Leonard. We know how old he was. We know how old Sarah was. He died on Christmas Eve, and she always gave her birthday as Christmas Day. So you think about that story. And then on the 1880 census, right, she gives her age as 24. Mm. So to live that much of a life, in that relatively short of a span, it really is humbling to kind of stand before and, that history. And Laura, just to chime in, we didn't say earlier in the records that you found back in Tennessee, that amazing census that had the names of the slaves, um, the Sarahs that you found both of were listed as mulatto, which would have meant that they had at least one parent or grandparent or more that were not black that were white is what the what the assumption we have is of what the census taker would have seen or thought so so then both of these men that Sarah marries are white 
So when you say that the obituary for her son didn't mention that he was black, um, interesting to note and, you know, not sure exactly what that means. But as you said, if you hadn't known what you were looking for, you might not have found it. But also just to wonder, again, her choices, if there if there had been black men there to marry or not, um, both times marrying white men and then having children and knowing that they would maybe be perceived differently than she was um, or not. And, and that either way has consequences. So I'll let you get back to, to Stephen Bickford now. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, so many questions about how her children would have been perceived in both of these marriages. And um it's just one of those points that's worth noting in here somewhere. The newspaper in Virginia City never once refers to her as Black. They never once refer to her in any racial terms. Um, and pretty shockingly, that goes for most of the other Black residents in Virginia City, too. Like, they don't ever mention that Minerva Cogswell and Parthenia Swede are Black, except in Minerva Cogswell's obituary. Mm-hmm. So... Um, There's some interesting dynamics with discussing race happening there. But Stephen Bickford, happier story. Um, Sarah's story gets a lot happier. So um, there's a few things about their marriage I think are interesting. We know they had like a real true partnership. And of course, there's a lot we don't know about what happened behind closed doors or sort of how they met, how they decided to marry each other. That's anyone's guess. Um, but we know that they supported each other in some really tangible ways. Um, Stephen is always really supportive of Sarah running her own little side businesses and acquiring property. And she's raising vegetables and chickens and poultry and things and selling them in the community during all of their marriage. Um, at the same time, she's helping him run the water company from pretty early on. He buys the water company just a couple of years after they get married. Um, but we know that she's probably running it for him because she's giving him the freedom to go off and be at his mining claims for months at a time and mm. explore all these other little like business ventures that he has happening. So her daughters talk a little bit about when Steven gets in a tight spot with money, Sarah's usually ready to help him out. But then he's really supportive of her in terms of their life around town and making sure that she's protected. And so it seems like whatever the dynamic was, however it developed, they made it work for them and they were a team for the rest of his life. So he died in 1900 and we know that she'd nursed him through a really long illness and one of my favorite little side stories about Sarah comes out of that final period of her life actually if we have time oh yeah definitely yeah okay so this is the most fun story ever and it's not in any of the popular accounts of Virginia City I ran across it by accident but um right before Stephen Bickford's death there's a guy hanging out at a bar in Virginia city. And some people are kind of like ribbing him. They're giving him a bad time. And he decides he's going to play the ultimate prank, right? He's going to get these guys back for whatever they've said. That's annoyed him. So he rides out of town, rides over to the Bickford's house. His plan is to see Stephen Bickford and borrow some gold dust. Cause he knows that Stephen Bickford will have some laying around and Stephen is too sick to get out of bed, but Sarah's there 
And so we know that he talks to Sarah and says, I just like, I need to borrow a little bag of gold dust. So she supplies him with this. He rides back into town, casually drops this on the bar in Virginia City and says, it's from my new gold strike right outside of town up Morin Creek. And the town literally empties out overnight. Just everybody <laughs> in Virginia City. This is in the 18, right? 1899. So it just, everybody empties out of Virginia City, rushing to Morin Creek. Um <laughs> to file gold claims. And the couple people who are left are like, but don't you think if there was gold there, like in the 1860s, people would have stumbled across it. And a bunch of people are like, no, no, no. (laughs) We have so much better technology now. Um, And then of course there's no gold there to be discovered. And it's this hilarious story that's told in a like pretty well-known chronicle of the vigilantes. But then if you look at it again, you're like, well, wait a minute. But that means like Sarah Bickford is over here just kind of laughing on the sidelines. She's in on the joke, right? (laughs) So aware of the dynamic of things in this town. So yeah, Mm. that's the Morin Creek gold hoax. So this is how you get a parking spot in Bozeman. You walk into a bar with a bag of gold dust. Yeah. (laughs) And tell people where you found it. Everyone clears out and you park. There you go. (laughs) Casually. You have to be casual about it. Yeah. 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 So after after Stephen dies, after his illness and, and his death, she takes over the water company. Um, tell us a little bit about what she did as the owner of the water company and and put it in perspective, too, about how significant this was for a black woman to be running a utility anywhere at this time. That's the moment we really need to, I mean it blows your mind a little bit when you think Mm. about it, right? Mm. It's not just that she's a business owner Mm because black women being business owners, there's actually quite a bit of in the United States that don't always get the attention that they deserve, but there's a big entrepreneurial history there. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. But she's a public utilities owner, Mm. right? So as a black female public utilities owner, it's not just that she's providing the service, It's that everybody who lives in Virginia City, no matter who they are, no matter how important they are, how high up they are on the local government or state government food chain, like they have to go see her if they want water. And we know that there's sort of multiple times throughout town history that at least a few residents are upset about this and they agitate and they call town council meetings and try and convince everybody that the city should just take over the water company of Virginia city. And it's voted down every single time, mm-hmm. every single time the majority of residents in that town come out and say, no, we're going to let Sarah Bickford keep running. this." That's public fascinating, utility. Laura, that they are so supportive of the way she was running the business, even after Stephen died. Fantastic. And a few things that are really important there. She modernizes a lot of things. So Mm -hmm. there's a really old piping system in Virginia city that goes actually back to like everything in Virginia city comes back to the vigilantes, right? The water system is started by a guy who has a run in with the vigilantes really early on. (laughs) Of course it is. Um, But she 
updates piping. She digs a whole new spring. She's actually the person who brings hot water, like hot running water into Virginia City for the first time. Wow. wow. She's got to deal with all these changes. You think about when she takes over. People have not thought of things like irrigating your lawn or washing your car or using water for, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, those different aspects of, yeah. A lot of change through till 1930. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. a lot of new technology and just understanding the engineering of all of that water, um, moving it around where it needs to get as the town grew. You know, and it's entirely gravity fed in Virginia City, oh, right? Wow. So everything she's doing, even like the state water engineers who come out to look over the system in the 1920s and 30s are like, wow, this is a very unique water system. We've never seen anything like it in this time. Wow. But she's finding a way to make it work and make it work for residents who really couldn't have afforded anything different right this is not a municipality that can afford some grand overhaul of the water system she has people writing to her saying i know my bill is behind by 50 cents i don't have it this month Mm. can you please Mm. not shut off my water and so she's being responsive to that here's another right way of comparing it that helps us think about it virginia city gets telephone service really early and also gets electricity really early And it's struggling to keep both of those services up and running through the 1920s and 30s. Mm -hmm. Times are really hard. The telephone company actually closes for a while. They have telephone lines and they literally have to shut the telephone lines down because they cannot find anybody who can pay the fees to operate the Bell Telephone Service out of Virginia City. So there's a few years where they don't have telephones Mm -hmm. in that same window of time. And so the fact that she's there keeping the water running despite all these obstacles says a lot about her acumen as a business owner and... And probably also her her empathy for, Mm -hmm. you know, the other members of the community and what role she really played then. Yeah, I mean, definitely sounds like a a central figure who's been there. You know, she ends up living there for about 60 years. That's a that's a pretty interesting, powerful woman that Mm -hmm. we're talking about, you know, Um, and what she chose to do with it. That's fascinating. So kind of in that same vein, you know, she's she's revamping the water system over this over time um she's keeping these these pipes going that were probably put in haphazardly originally you know really making the system work much better as time goes on and then she's also thinking of this more as a business so Stephen dies in 1900 and in 1903 sarah decides to move the water company office into a building on Main Street. And so it was probably, um, maybe you know this, Laura, but it was probably just run out of their house prior to this. But in 1903, she moves the the office into a headquarters on Main Street. And this building that she moves into is no ordinary building. This building was and is known as the Hangman's Building because it is where on January 14th, 1864, 
five road agents were hanged by the vigilantes that we've been talking about. So Sarah purchased this building, this particular building, knowing that it had this history, and she may have even bought it because of this history. So can you tell us a little bit about this and and your theories on this? There's so many things wrapped up in this. So the prevailing wisdom for a long time was she kind of moved in there around the turn of the century. Um, And I have some suspicions that maybe that came about because people were somehow trying to link it back to Stephen Bickford. Like it was really uncomfortable thinking about her taking over that building. Mm, Okay. Um, And there's a couple interesting things that emerged out of my research there. Um, One is we know that she used to just visit people door to door. And she probably is doing that while Stephen owns the company. We don't have any sense of Stephen going door to door, but beginning when he buys shares of the water company, she just kind of goes around to everybody's door, knocks on their door once a month and says, hi, here's your bill and has conversations with them and learns about what they need and, you know, what they can afford and what's going on in their lives. And so she really does have that personal relationship, every single one of her customers, which is like most people in town, right. Would like to have running water um, at their homes. Um, But it's really interesting. So with the hangman's building, she actually didn't move her business headquarters there until 1914. Okay. Okay. Much later. um, In 1903, it's a barbershop. It's being run as there's a barbershop in the building. The guy who owned it has installed indoor plumbing. So like, yay for him, you know, which Sarah would have installed all that plumbing, right? Right. I was going to say that was probably Sarah. Yeah. (laughs) She would know exactly what's going on in that building. So it's one of the few that has hot and cold running water. And he would have needed that because of his barber shop. Right, right. Um, but that building's getting kind of a little decrepit. And there's actually people in Virginia City who are like, oh, we should tear that down. Because once again, at the turn of the century, they're filled with all these hopes and dreams that the railroad is finally going to reach Virginia City. Mm. And then it's the promise of automobiles and... Mm. There was literally an article, front page article in the Madisonian newspaper. It's like, well, we should tear it down and build a big hotel. We're going to need that when all the tourists start coming. Um, So in 1914 is when she first moves her headquarters there. And we can really, she's getting a little older at this point. Maybe she doesn't really want to be walking around town in the snow, you know, in the middle of January. Yeah. um, Talking to people about their water rates. So she opens her little office and she opens the other side of that building as a restroom for ladies. So that probably means white middle and upper middle-class women who are traveling with their families, maybe headed to Yellowstone or someplace. And there's really nowhere for women to stop in Virginia city at this point. So she takes advantage of that space and she acquires title to the building in about 1922. Okay. And it's around that time she installs a trapdoor in the ceiling. So this is a really important moment, right? I really had to sit with a lot in doing my research. That beam has been covered up. The beam where these five road agents are lynched side by side has been covered up. And this building has been in operation as some kind of a business since 1864. And the newspaper reports on, well, 
Sarah Bickford had a trap door installed and you can still see the rope burns in the beam. And there's a few old timers around town who are like, wow, that recalls some memories of like when we did all that stuff. And there was like a big lynching in town on that day. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she certainly is aware. And the defining moment for me was realizing that she has her little water company office sign says, you know, Virginia City Water Co. office. And then there's a big sign at the top of the building that says, you know, hanged here on this date in 1864 and a list of the five road agents names. And it's in precisely the same lettering. And it's Mm. from her tenure of owning the building. So Sarah put up that signage, right? Sarah's the one who's identifying for tourists that this is where that specific lynching that you're hearing about takes place. And of course, Clubfoot George Lane's foot has only been dug up and like severed from his body in 1907. That is a recent Mm. development when she's doing this. So those connections of drawing tourists in through this idea of the Wild West is certainly something she was engaged with at a time when Virginia City is really begging and pleading with people to take this tourism thing seriously because there's not a lot of other opportunities right. for developing business. So not only does she save the building, she brings people mm. into the building, including Mary Pickford the most famous silent film actress in America. We know stops at that building Mm. in the 1920s, almost certainly interacted with Sarah. And so like, I have my theories on why Mm. she supported the vigilantes, but in and of itself, her business acumen and engaging with tourism is insane. Really? Mm. I mean, she doesn't get enough credit for it. Yeah. Laura, do you know at that time what other people would have known about the vigilantes? Were there things published and the stories were out and about so it was something she knew could be capitalized on? Vigilantes have always been popular. It's a great question. So, of course, we have the original account, Thomas Dimsdale's Mm. The Vigilantes of Montana, which appears in 1865. There's actually an earlier book called Banditti of the Rocky Mountains. Um, Questionable authorship from 1864, Mm. regarded as not as good as Dimsdale. Um, And then there's a proliferation of follow-up accounts, including Nathaniel Pitt Langford in the 1880s or 90s that his book comes out. And um, the vigilantes and road agents are kind of this story of perpetual fascination. A lot of the men who had been vigilantes go on to become state senators or territorial governors or, right, they play important roles in Montana history. So we know from really early accounts, like by the 1870s, this is not very long after this stuff happened, there are tourists coming through Virginia City on their way to go to Yellowstone, like literally outfitting a wagon so they can head into Yellowstone and they're asking to see some of these vigilante sites or see the graves of the road agents. And once automobile tourism kicks in in the early 20th century, all of a sudden it collides with that nostalgia for the Wild West and people having more control over their movements. And then it's just kind of this perfect moment of... Virginia City is authentic as part of the Wild West. 
because these events happened there and because you can see the graves and you can see the beam in this building and Clubfoot George Lane's foot, right? Mm. Like literally his foot is cut off his body and put in the Virginia City Museum. So the fact that you can go interact with that history gives Virginia City, which of course is looking a little rundown, a little like, you know, increasingly decrepit in terms Mm. of buildings at this point, it kind of adds to the aura and so Sarah and, Dickford is yeah. Isn't it only about ten or fifteen years after her death that the that the Bovies start really acquiring property and bringing whole buildings to Virginia and Nevada City and really making it a a destination mm-hmm. with a with a lot of infrastructure and and money and things like that. So so she was. She at was ahead the of that. forward yeah. end of that that curve that really followed. Um, so it's 1945 that the Bovies, right? Yeah. We forget this part of the story too. Her children still owned the building mm. and the water company at that point. When Charlie Bovie shows up in Virginia City, hmm. her family is still running the water company. Wow. So, so her daughters happened. stay in Virginia City, Laura. Her daughters all left, but her son stayed in Virginia City, and she left all of them shares of the company. So all four of her children own kind of equal shares. Wow. And they so, don't sell it until the 60s. I mean, it, there's a long period. That's a long time. Long time. So so how, she had two or three daughters. She has three daughters, three daughters and one son. And one son with, with Stephen Bickford. With Stephen Bickford. Okay. And they all survived into adulthood. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Much happier. Yeah. So to kind of go back to the to the hangman's building, you know, Sarah, like you said, would go back and forth from Virginia City to Tennessee, and during these years of the nineteen, um, the late eighteen hundreds, the early nineteen hundreds, she kind of would go back and forth, and she knew what was happening um, in the South. She knew what was happening with, uh, all these lynchings that of course weren't just in the South, but throughout the nation. And so can you talk a little bit about the connection between all these lynchings that were happening to black people and her buying this building that had a lynching happen in it? It's certainly one of those moments that really makes you think, right. And it really throws a wrench into, we like to think that history is linear and it, you know, just progresses and it's always more complicated than yeah. that. Yeah. She's certainly aware of what's happening, you know, where, where she came from. Um, and I remember the first time someone asked me to, you know, sort of define, well, like, why do you feel like you need to write a whole book about her story? Um And I remember that line coming out of my mouth. Well, she's a black woman promoting tourism at the site of a lynching. Like there has to be a reason, right? Sarah didn't do things by accident. Sarah didn't. And I think that was sort of the narrative. I mean, she kind of like inadvertently ended up in this building and kind of there was some tourism there. I don't think she really was given credit for Mm -hmm. making active decisions to promote and preserve this space um and I've always had a lot of questions about it because she's certainly aware of 
what is happening. She subscribes to black periodicals. She takes her children to visit back East. She takes all her children to the world's fair in 1906. Mm -hmm. Like one of her daughters ends up going to school, um, studying sociology at the university of Chicago and then becoming a social worker. So Mm -hmm. another of her daughters ends up marrying someone who's a professor at Howard. So like they certainly are educated and aware, um, and then I think the the common explanation for a long time was, well, Stephen Bickford was probably a vigilante. So it's probably mm-hmm. just sort of by default that she was connected with that history. Um, I can't find any evidence anywhere that Stephen Bickford was a vigilante. He might have kind of latently supported them, but we don't really know. Um He's certainly not one of the people who's really actively and, you know, upfront engaged the vigilantes. Doesn't really seem to fit his style. Um, we know about But everything him. you've said is that there's, there's no connection except the fact that she bought the building. Mm-hmm. It's all her own agency. And, and it's so strange to mm-hmm. just strip that because she isn't this white member of society with more history. I mean, here's mm-hmm. a woman who, who didn't really know her own parents who creates not one but two family, and the first family doesn't work out. She creates a whole second family. She successfully raises four kids who go on to do great things. She runs a public utility, and as you said, she knows everyone. She she gets voted to remain in place. I mean, this woman deserves an incredible amount of, of credit for making the, the decisions she made. And as you said, it, it seems counterintuitive once you understand anything about her that this would have been accidental and not intentional. And so I think there's very interesting, very interesting ways to interpret and think about, you know, what she was intending and what she thought about when she made those decisions. Um, And just to put her in a broader context, um, we have other examples of black women in Montana running and owning businesses. And one example is Maddie Kastner, who also married a white man, John Kastner in 1879. And that couple moved to Belt, Montana, which is outside of Great Falls, Montana. And Maddie then opened the Kastner Hotel, around which the town of Belt really grew. So tell us a little bit more about her story so we can understand just what some other women like Sarah Bickford were able to do in in Montana in a similar time period. That really is the incredible distinction with Sarah Bickford, right? So um, it's pretty tempting to compare her to Maddie Kastner. They're roughly the same age. I mean, they're most certainly born within a few years of each other. They had both been slaves as children and then are freed fairly young during the Civil War. Um, Both married white men. They're both running these businesses and they're kind of similar kinds of businesses, you know, domestic provisions and lodging services and food services. Um, and I really had to wrestle with that a little bit with Sarah, because you, know, you kind of go looking for those connections. Like, well, maybe Stephen Bickford provided her kind of a shield or some status in the community where people were going to be more respectful to her because of who she was married to. That kind of has been the story we're told about Maddie Kastner, right? She's married to John K. Kastner. There's several John Kastners in Montana <laughs> that time. Um And she kind of becomes known also for her hospitality and her generosity and giving back to the community. And so there's those sort of similar echoes 
in their stories. Um, I don't know as much about Maddie Kastner, and I would really love for someone to write a deeper dive into her story. Um, but I don't know. With Sarah, I kind of have my suspicions about how it's more complicated than that. For one thing, Stephen Bickford might have given her some status in the community, but the newspapers don't refer to Sarah Bickford as being a black woman when she's married to John Brown either. And John mm-hmm. Brown certainly mm-hmm. didn't give her status in that community. He's exactly the kind of citizen they don't want. He doesn't pay his taxes. Um, in fact, this is my suspicion. Do we have time for this? Kind of my suspicion yes. about why Sarah is- suspicions, yes. <laughs> I mean, I'll never be able to prove it. I don't think anybody's ever going to be able to prove it. But um, when it comes to Sarah choosing to engage with the vigilante legend, which that I'm certain of, okay, she doesn't accidentally buy the hangman's building. She has a lot of options of a lot of much nicer buildings she could have acquired in Virginia City at that time. Um, But there is this kind of, circumstantial story of a timeline of things that we know happened. So her son, James Leonard Brown dies on Christmas Eve, um, 1877 um, under some kind of mysterious circumstances that aren't really reported on that same episode of, or issue of the Madisonian newspaper that reports on his death includes a little notice that says, We hear of a case of extreme wife beating in this town that happened last night. And if it happens again, we're going to publish the name of the perpetrator. We know Mm. who he is. Consider this a warning. We know that right at that moment, Sarah takes Eva and runs to Lorray, Montana, and is out of Virginia City for a few days, weeks, months. She's gone for a little while. Um, And in her divorce proceedings... She writes out in pretty clear detail, John Brown beat me really severely. He threatened to kill me. He abandoned his family. These are all the things he did. And so I've always had this moment, you know, I can't prove. I can't prove that Sarah Bickford is who the Madisonian's talking about in that story. There's all these sort of pieces of the puzzle. But one of the ways they fit together that is a possibility, I can't say it definitively, but it's possible I've always kind of had this suspicion just based on the way I read her records. Um, John Brown, you know, beat her perhaps is complicit in the death of their child. We don't know how he died. The newspaper doesn't report on it. You'd think if it's diphtheria or something, they'd probably note that because they want other people to be aware there's a potential case of diphtheria, right? And they don't say anything about it. John Brown all of a sudden disappears from town. He never comes back to Virginia City. Mm. We know that he's in Deer Lodge when he served with divorce proceedings. Mm. Um, So I've always had this kind of suspicion, like there's all these rumors that there's sort of remnant groups of the vigilantes that will form to kind of threaten, right? Or rid the community of threats. And it's conceivable, right? Some latent group of those vigilantes come together and tell John Brown, get out of town. We know what you did. You are not a contributing member of the society, but your wife is. She runs a boarding house here. She's done things for the community. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and then Sarah Bickford kind of has that moment where 
she's been protected by if it's an actual remnant of the vigilantes or just some people who came out to support her like we'll never know nobody was going to have written that down but but some evidence of the community supporting her in that yeah that's that's powerful yeah wow well you know and and um there's these women sarah bigford maddie kastner who are very much prominent in their communities and uh, are married to white men, but that doesn't mean that they aren't um, having agency themselves. So so these women who have a lot of agency. And then we have a, a third woman who we're going to end on, and her name is Mary Fields, and she did not marry. <laughs> so, so, but she had a lot of agency herself. Um, also grew up enslaved also in Tennessee. Also grew up enslaved in Tennessee. They're very similar stories to Maddie Kastner and um, Sarah Bigfoot. So, you know, I think these women all had agency. We see it with a lot of other black women throughout Montana at this time. And they had this agency and they used it. But let's just end quickly with Mary Fields and talk a little bit about her. She deserves her own, right, full movie. She was just mm-hmm. in... Um, the new Netflix movie that came out about Black Westerners. Yeah, the, the Harder They Fall. The Harder yeah. They Fall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she also deserves so much more. And of course, Dee Garso has done some amazing work on Mary Fields. Um, but she's an interesting case, right, where she's sort of known for being kind of notorious. She's you know, rocking a pistol or a rifle wherever she goes. She drives the mail route for about 10 years of her life. She's kicked out of the nunnery she's living at at one point where she's doing a lot of this masculine work of fixing things and mending fences and planting gardens. And um, she's, you know, sort of told she has to leave because her use of profanity and her proclivities to drinking are... Oh, I like her already. Yeah. Yeah, they're getting her (laughs) in trouble. (laughs) She runs a saloon and tavern for a little while. And the story is that it goes bankrupt because if people can't afford to pay her, she'll let them eat for free. And a lot of people Mm. take advantage of her generosity is one of the stories. Um, we know that at one point, like she's well known for drinking in saloons in Cascade and they pass a law that says women are not allowed to drink in saloons, but then they carve out an exception for Mary Fields, but Mary Fields is allowed to drink in saloons. And it's this interesting, like you're happy to see her remembered in the history and Mm -hmm. see her taken note of and she really does accomplish incredible things for her time and for who she was at that time. She also was kind of treated like a mascot and mm-hmm. just because she's talked about doesn't necessarily mean she felt included in the place that she lived. And this is worthy of so much more study, right? Mm-hmm. Sarah Bickford, we know to some degree is really included in the daily life of Virginia City and we get a sense of that the final story I have to tell you about Sarah Bickford right because we have so few of her own words and one of the few cases where we do have Sarah Bickford's own words is there's a really bad freeze in Virginia City in 1930 it's not too long before Sarah Bickford's death there's this horrible freeze all the water pipes are frozen water pipes break it's chaos She's trying to get everything fixed. Um, A state senator 
M.M. Duncan gets really upset with her and tries to lie about it, essentially, and says, well, I'm not going to pay for the cost of fixing my own pipes, which is what the codes in Virginia City say. I want you to put in a bigger line to my house because I want more water pressure than everybody else. Mm. And Sarah Bickford is like, no, no, no. And the exact quote we have from her is, I'm not going to do this because we aim to treat everyone the same at the Mm. Virginia City Water Company, essentially. And we think about that moment. So this guy, M.M. Duncan, um, who's pretty well known in Montana history, actually, no doubt, like some of your listeners know who he is. His family were slaveholders in Missouri before the Civil War. He's a pretty committed, right, Southern Democrat. Um, And then we see in that moment, someone like Sarah standing up and saying, no, I aim to treat everybody the same. I'm not going to give you special treatment. We can see her in kind of way of standing up for someone like Mary Fields or someone like Maddie Kastner, who maybe didn't leave us that moment in time where they said, you know, I would like to be included. I would like to be treated as an equal in this community. And all those stories are unique, but there's also this bigger story of Black Montanans and their agency and the way they approached the world around them, which isn't to say they could make everything be exactly the way they wanted to, but they could certainly work for the kinds of right inclusion and acceptance that they wanted. Whether they got it all the time is, of course, a lot more complicated, but there's maybe more opportunities there than there would have been somewhere else. We can't imagine Sarah writing those words. First of all, it's hard to imagine her having been able to be a business owner, right, in Tennessee in this way, or own a public utility, but like writing the words, no, I'm not going to do this for him. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to treat him differently. And she's writing that to his lawyers, right? She's writing that to like the people who are going to decide this case and saying, no, I refuse. I think you you do have to have the support of the community to be able to respond like that and to know that you have it. I think that's such a wonderful way to end um, this story. I think it's remarkable. I think the research you've done is remarkable. And I love all these extra stories we were able to yeah. get you to sneak in um, because that to me is is the truth of understanding what we can about these people from the past and thank goodness we have some of her story and that you were able to piece together more again I think it's remarkable I think it's so difficult for us to put ourselves in someone's shoes like that and and it just helps us understand our whole nation from east to west from north to to south so much better when we hear these stories about what people were able to do in that time given what was going on around them so thank you so much um we'd love to discuss so much more with you i'm sure we'll discuss future research with you at at some point but we've run out of time um and we just want to remind people about your book race and the wild west um we encourage everyone to find a copy and if people would like to read more of your work laura um where can they find you are you on social media or do you have a website I am on social media you can find me on twitter or instagram at laura j errata you can find Race in the Wild West on Facebook. It has its own Facebook page, and I try and post updates on there. I'll be doing some book talk stuff 
in June in Montana that I'm really excited about. Um, and of course, Race in the Wild West is available on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. Support your local bookstores. They can order it for you. I also know they have it at Ranks Drugstore in Virginia City. And I think maybe the Extreme History Project HQ might yeah. have a couple of copies. We sure do. We sure do. <laughs> Thanks so much, Laura, for coming and visiting with us today about Sarah Bigford. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a joy to talk about her. Thank you, Laura, and thank you to our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week. And also, we ask you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really helps us, and it helps others find this podcast. So thanks for listening today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about The The Dirt dirt on the the past. Past. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin. Thanks to Lawson Alegria for mixing the music and to John Chadwell for help getting this podcast out into the world. <laughs>